Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Oscar, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. G'day, Michael. Really looking forward to listening to your questions. When I was looking at your background, when the team said, hey, this guy called Oscar is doing some really interesting things, do you want to speak to him? I looked at your profile, and the thing that struck me is you talk about something that we don't think about enough because we think we do it. So when I was listening to what you were saying, I'm thinking to myself, if I went to a client and said, do you really listen or do you listen or do you listen enough? They're always going to tell me yes, because we don't know what good listening is. There's almost no benchmark. So how do you start off this discussion by getting people to take the topic seriously? Because many of them think they're experts at it. Don't start by talking about listening is the way we do it. We talk about the con consequences of the absence of deep listening. What's the impact on profitability? What's the impact on the way that you're growing through selling more products to existing clients? Or are you winning the wrong kind of clients so the clients that you have are unprofitable? So we talk about listening through a very consequential and commercial mm -hmm. terms. Starting off with talking about listening, it's kind of like talking about sex and politics straight away when you haven't met somebody. It's probably not the entry point to the conversation. People understand my expertise and my background, but what they appreciate about the way I engage with them is we spend a lot of time understanding if we were to look at the last four employee engagement surveys and the reason people are leaving your organization, we can quickly find a very straight line to the inability to listen, not just to what's said, but most importantly, to listen to what's not said in that data. So for me, Michael, starting with talking about listening, uh, my, one of my recent book reviews was quite funny. It, its title said, just like comedy and sex, listening is something we think we're all great at. And uh, yeah, I, th true. <laughs> I think for many of us, we don't think about it. And for many of us, we can talk about wine and cheese in much more depth and nuance than we can talk about listening. And I'm really curious to explore that with you today. Yeah, it's something you just said now that made me think back to a conversation I had a week ago. I was speaking to my partner and we've been planning different things in our lives. And one of the things that came out is that for the next few months, because I'm going through some medical stuff, we're focusing on what I need. So I remember telling my partner, you need to tell me what you need as well. And the response was that for now, I'm not going to tell you what I need because we're going to focus on what you need. But by saying that, and by me not hearing what I wanted to hear, it also told me a lot about what is happening. So the part that I want to focus on here is when we listen, we listen to what is said, and we respond to what is said, but we often don't think about what is not being said. When you understand the neuroscience, when you understand that listening is an art and a science, most people don't know these three yes. numbers, 
And if you know these three numbers, you understand why you're turning up to a casino and getting casino odds. The casino is always going to win. And the same is true if you only listen to what's said, because most people don't realize that the first thing that somebody says is only 14% of what they think and what they mean. And by expanding on that, these three numbers, if you understand these three numbers, un unlike 98% of the population, only 2% of the people know this about listening. 2% of working population have had any training on listening. The numbers are 125, 400, 900. Could you repeat those? 125? 125, 400, 900. And I'm going to explain each. And I'm going to explain how they're linked. One of the things most people don't realize about a conversation is listening is like a simultaneous mathematical equation, meaning there's two parts and they both influence each other. So as a speaker, you'll be listening. And as a listener, you'll be speaking. These roles interact very quickly in a dialogue. And our roles aren't distinct. We're not a speaker. We're not a listener although people think we are, yes, you're, you are both. So let's unpick each of those numbers. When you know these numbers, listening moves from draining and difficult. And most people think listening in the workplace is therapy, and it's not. And listening in the workplace <laughs> is, a, is a commercial superpower if you do it well. 125 words per minute is the average speaking speed of an English-speaking workplace listener in the Western world. 900 words per minute is their average thinking speed. Now, if you have a master's, if you're working in competitive, collaborative, creative, resource-constrained environments, you may be thinking up to 1,600 words per minute. So thinking about it from the speaker's perspective, Let's just do 125 words per minute and 900 words per minute thinking. The first thing that somebody says is 14% of what they think. That means 86% is unsaid. Now, you probably don't want to know everything I'm thinking at the moment. Yes. One, of the, one of the things I'm thinking is, oh, it's Friday morning here in Sydney and the garbage trucks are coming and I hope <laughs> they don't come and impact the recording. But there's at least another 14% that will be useful and possibly another 14% that will be insightful. If you can listen to 125, 125 and 125, you'll probably help the speaker to move from what they say to what they think to what they mean. And here's the dirty little secret of listening, Michael. Most people think listening takes too long. Our deep listening ambassador community, a group of 1,410 people we've been tracking in the yes. workplace for five years, tell us that they get between 5 and 10% of their meeting back when they listen this way. And meetings are actually shorter because you're talking to the person about what matters. There is less rework. You don't come back to other meetings. So 125 words per minute is their speaking speed. 900 words per minute is their thinking speed. Now, let's look at it from the listener's perspective. The listener is listening to 125 words per minute, yet they can think, uh, sorry, they can listen 
at 400 words per minute. You are neurologically, genetically programmed to be distracted when you're listening to somebody because you can listen four times faster than they can speak. We have peripheral vision, but we also have peripheral hearing. And we have the front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex working memory, which is where the most complex parts of listening take place. While they're speaking much slower than you can listen, you're using a group of heuristics, you're jumping ahead, you're anticipating, you're problem solving, you're thinking about many other things. And what you're not doing is you're not listening to how they're saying it and you're not listening to what they're not saying. So these numbers, as you hear them, I'm curious what that means for you, Michael, as you think about your own listening. Well, the first thing, I'm just going to make sure I understand the numbers correctly for the audience mm. as well. 125 words is the average that people speak at per minute. Yes. 400 is the average number of words that the listener can listen at. Yes. 900 to 1600 is the number of words the listener thinks at. The speaker thinks that. The speaker thinks that, not the listener. So the speaker thinks that 900 words a minute. Mm. Okay. So the first thing that jumps out to me, because I had a completely different lens, is that I never thought about the different speeds. And now thinking mm. about that, I can understand some problems I've had working with people. Because one of the things I've always thought about is why don't people get to the point? Mm. I always think, why don't you just tell me what you want to tell me? But maybe the other party thinks they're getting to the point. And maybe because I'm thinking about why they're not getting to the point, I'm not hearing what they're saying. I'm not even thinking about the fact that there are things they're not telling me. And I know because I used to be a senior partner, I've worked with many companies, and one of the most difficult things in management is people are afraid to tell you the truth. So in my role, You've got a culture where people are predisposed not to tell you the truth because they're afraid of the consequences. And then because of the limitations of the way we speak, you've got 125 words of which only 14 are going to be 14% is going to reveal what you want. It's almost as if I have to allocate more time to understand the way people communicate. Because I'm applying the same technique when I speak to everyone, when I listen to everyone. People say I do it well but I'm not taking the time to figure out how to get the best out of this person. I'm treating it almost like a commodity. Same style for everyone, same approach for everyone. All meetings are running the same way. And I do it because I think it's efficient, but it's not efficient when you put the numbers in. Mm. And I love uh, Wendy Smith's episode where she talks about the podcast, uh, episode 279. Please go back and listen to it. It's probably one of the best uh, interviews I've heard on a podcast. And this is the paradox of listening. It, listening is situational, it's relational, and it's contextual. So mm. you'll listen differently to a mechanic than you will to your mother. You'll yes. listen different to an accountant than you will to an actor. And most of us, like you, Michael, turn up with a default listening and communication orientation. And a lot of people equate questions with listening. And the yes. questions are often really to elicit more content for the listener to understand what the speaker is saying. 
here's the dirty little secret of listening. It's not your job in most cases to make sense of what they're saying. Because what they're saying, as you said, Michael, when they say it the first time, it's far from elegant. Yes. It's far from sequenced. It's far from deliberate. It's far from uh, getting an insight. And like a clothes washing machine, if you've had to wash clothes, one thing we know about washing is that when the machine is in wash mode, it's sudsy, it's dirty, it's agitated, it's moving from left to right, but it needs a rinse cycle to clean out the clothes. And all washing machines have at least two rinse cycles. And the same is true when it comes to human communication. When it's inside somebody's mind, it's like being inside that washing machine. It's dirty, it's agitated, it's unformed, it's not yeah. precise, it's inelegant. And yet when they speak, there's their rinse cycle. So my invitation to you is just think about the rinse cycle and give them two rinse cycles to get it out. If you're in any kind of professional services organization and you're taking a brief, the most important brief to take is to listen to the things that matter that are not symptoms, but are system issues. Yet most people are listening for similarities, for symptoms, Yes. rather than listening for difference and listening to systems. So for many of us, the first thing we need to understand is the minute we go, our communication styles are mismatched. Michael, you mentioned, why aren't they getting to the point? Why, yes. why, can't, why can't they say? You have had decades of training in precise language, frameworks, and ways to structure the way you communicate, progression models maturity models, cycles, yet the people you're working with and possibly taking the briefs from, they may not have had the structure, the methodology that you have had. And therefore, when they're talking to you, they're literally saying what they think for the very first time because they've never had somebody to be present with them so that they can say not just what they think, but also what they mean. I like that. That's a very, very powerful lens to think about it. I want to add in two more observations that jumped out to me when you were speaking. The first one is we bring baggage to a conversation. So when someone's speaking to me, I'm not just listening to what they're telling me in that two-minute conversation. I'm interpreting it based on everything they've done that I've seen them do over the last 10 years. So if they've always been, in my mind, a slacker, who doesn't get the job done, when they're speaking to me right now, I am applying the lens of them being a slacker who doesn't get the job done. And I'm looking for reasons why they're not going to get the job done at this point. So I think that's the first thing that jumps out to me. The other mm -hmm. one is a great example that you gave, and I'm going to pull it out for the audience. You know, what you said is so insightful that when we speak for the first time, it's the first round of getting our thoughts across. We need time to refine it, right? But beyond that, oftentimes the biggest problems with communication happen when we're emotional. We're not thinking clearly, so we say things. And I've often heard people say things like, but you said this. And they hold them accountable for what they said, not realizing that it wasn't fully thought through. They maybe didn't mean it. It's not the way they wanted to say it. So where I'm getting to here is that it seems as if we've got to be more willing to 
not be so precise in the way we analyze things because people are not precise in the way they're always speaking. We've got to give them room to find what they want to say, to get it across, to build on it. Am I going in the right direction there? You've drawn each element together so well. I want to zoom you into a conversation I had with uh, Jennifer and Christopher. And I've interviewed over 200 workplace listeners, whether they are judges, whether they're air traffic controllers, whether they're journalists. So I've been very privileged to have the opportunity, not only in our 24,000 research database of workplace listeners, but to have some really rich conversations. This conversation was, was in Minnesota and Jennifer explained that her son Christopher came home from school. He was a young star. He was about four, uh, five or six, and he came home very excited, and Jennifer was distracted. And she said, what did you learn at school today, honey? And he said, oh, mummy, I learned, I learned maths, and I learned the three yeah. is half of eight. And she, she thought she misheard him, and she asked, honey, could you say that again? And, and he did, and he said exactly the same thing. I learned the three is half of eight. And in that moment, Jennifer thought, oh, wow. So she went to the cupboard and got a packet of M&Ms, the little candies, and she got four and lined them up on the kitchen bench and another four like little chocolate soldiers in in a parade facing each other. And she picked her son up, Christopher, and she put him on the bench and said, honey, count how many chocolate soldiers are in this row. And he said, four, mummy. And on the other side, Christopher, and he said, four, mummy. And she said, look, Four and four adds up to eight. So four, not three, is half of eight. And with that, Christopher, he leapt off the bench and he went to the corner cupboard. He got a piece of paper and a Sharpie or a texter, depending on uh, how you're educated. (laughs) And he drew the figure eight for his mummy. And what he did next was he folded the piece of paper in half vertically and he folded it back on itself vertically and he tore it in half and showed his mum two perfectly formed threes and said, mummy, three is half of eight. Now, Christopher. I love that example. Christopher was thinking in geometry. Yes. And Jennifer was thinking in arithmetic. Now, if you folded that piece of paper in half horizontally, zero would be half of eight. Three is half of eight and four is half of eight. And what highlights is for most of us who are trained in the scientific method to use evidence, to pattern match. Our primary listening orientation is listening for similarity. We are pattern matching against past evidence, against past cases, against past assignments, against past projects, and we're using heuristics to anticipate into the future. For all of us, we operate in workplaces where there isn't one answer. And if you think that's true, then just remember three is half of eight because we all operate in workplaces where zero is half of eight, three is half of eight, four is half of eight. If you bring an orientation where you only listen for similarity and you're using it as a heuristic to prove that you're right and they're wrong, based on my experience, based on my seniority, based on my cultural background, based on my education, based on my learnings, whatever that might be, as people in Western workplaces, we are 
educated to listen for similarities as a primary listening orientation. And in Christopher's example and the gift he gives us, explaining that three is half of eight, my invitation to you always is notice is your primary listening orientation for similarity or are you going to be conscious enough to listen for difference? Now, as Wendy mentioned in her episode, there's a paradox here. It's not listening for similarities or listening for difference. It's yes. and. How do we find where it's appropriate to do both? And I think for many of us, Michael, that moment where three is half of eight happens in most of our conversations, but we never take the time to understand what people mean, geometry versus arithmetic, because their construct of thinking about it is very different from yours. Well, I like that example. It makes a lot of sense. I remember once working with this operations consultant. I was a partner then. And I could never understand what this lady was telling me. I didn't get it. I didn't understand what she was talking about. And at the time, a lot of people at the firm wanted to manage her out because they felt that she was not doing a good job as an operations consultant. But I thought she worked hard. Clients like her. What if we moved her out of the operations practice into the strategy practice? And that lady went on to become one of the best strategy partners we ever had. And the issue there, it took me a long time to realize, is that she spoke a language and she viewed the world very differently from me. When I'm talking to someone, I, in my mind, assume they're prioritizing things the way I prioritize it. Mm. So for example, if, if I'm talking to my team about how to raise the economic profit of a mining company, I know in my head, economic profit equals X, Y, Z. This is the lever we pull. Let's talk on this. Everyone needs to focus on this. And this lady will come in and talk about something else because her way of viewing the world was different. Mm -hmm. It wasn't wrong. It was different. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what is the role of leadership? Is it to make people give us the information we need? Or is it to find a way to understand our employees so we can get the best out of them? And I always think about that story because sometimes I may be working with a really smart person who knows what they're doing, but their lens of approaching the world is so different that I don't see the value in what they're saying. And I think at a certain age and a certain level of maturity, you must know that you're not always going to understand value when you see it. Hmm. And you've got to have a team around you that can value and say, hey, hold on, Michael, what this lady is saying makes a lot of sense. Let's give her the role where she can shine. So when you're talking about the listening skills and the patterns, it's true. We forget our educational system. And those first few places we work have trained us to think in a certain way. And when we meet someone who doesn't think in the way we think, we often think they don't make sense. We equate us not understanding with them not making sense. And it's not true at all. Sometimes it's true. So how do you guide people in knowing those limitations so they can be more open-minded? I want to just make a quick note. Uh, I'll, I'll pick up the question shortly. I just want to make a quick note that people who are working in a language that's not their home language yes. have a superpower that they don't realize. Because they understand multiple language constructs, 
they are more likely to spot the difference faster than people from a monoculture and a single language background. So if you're listening right now and you have a second, third language, and when I talk about that, I'm not only talking about your country of origin language, I'm speaking about music. I'm speaking about mathematics. I'm speaking about chemistry. These are all other languages that have constructs and they give you a multiple lens to listen and experience the world through compared to people who only know one construct. If you think about a galaxy, people who speak one language, they only know the earth. But if you zoom out and you have multiple languages, you understand there's a galaxy, you understand there's orbits, and you understand the interaction, not only what's happening on the Earth. So if you have a second language, please don't view it as a disadvantage commercially or in the workplace. It's actually a superpower. I want you to expand on that. Give me some examples of different languages, because I think the audience may take it literally, but I think there's not a literal meaning. Or oh, is it a literal meaning? Yeah, so it could be French, it could it could be um, Chinese, it could be Hindi, it could be German. Yet it could also be understanding the language of music. If you can read music, if you can yes. play music, there are many similarities in both those compared to language. Mathematics is another example where the constructs are operating completely independently of language and linguistic interaction, how we communicate. And what it gives you is a very different perspective on the context you're in while you're listening. I was speaking to a client in Israel uh, two weeks ago, and she was very frustrated with her inability to use the precise English language word in a particular Mm, workplace context. And I simply said to her, please say it in Hebrew to me. And she said it. And the minute she said it in Hebrew, she said the word immediately corresponding and accurately in English. What she said next was most powerful, though. She said, I've been thinking about this all wrong. I've been trying to place myself in their world where I can be valuable from my view. And I simply said, tell me more. And she went on to describe a situation and it's in a very complex part of software engineering in the field of security that the client wanted it done this way. And the way they did it was a very common way, yet the proposed approach from my Israeli client was completely different. And now that she could communicate its value in its difference, wind the clock forward last week, I got a lovely email and saying the situation's changed for the better for them and for me. I said the word to them in Hebrew and in English, and we both understood despite the fact the other person couldn't speak Hebrew. And it was like a lock had been opened in a padlock. Equally, We expect people to listen the way we do, Michael. And I remember being brought in to help a chair and a board of directors in a very complex insurance company. One of the big consequences they were dealing with is the catastrophic 
impacts of climate at the moment and what that means for premiums, what that means for pricing, what that means for the markets in which they operate. And the chair had brought me in and said, I want you to watch this lady. She's not really engaged with the team. She's not really a team player. And I thought, okay, well, I've got an open mind. And the board meeting went for a full day and it went from 9 till 10.30 and there was a break. And so I observed not just this lady, but the whole group in its interaction. This lady was not looking anybody in the eye. She wasn't looking at the PowerPoint presentation. Her eyes were consistently down either at her feet or at her notepad. The contributions she made were incredibly insightful and held the gravity of the group in her hand when she mentioned them. At the morning tea break, I simply asked her, could you tell me how you concentrate? She said, I find visuals really distracting. I find the way I concentrate best and listen to what matters is if I don't look at what's going on and just listen. I said, great, would you mind or would you be open to announcing that to the group when you go back to the table? She said, oh, of course. She didn't realise that she was listening differently to the rest of the group. She did, and you could hear an audible sigh in the room. At lunchtime, the chair and I went outside and I had a quick chat. I said, what did you notice when she came back to the board and explained how she listened? He goes, I've been doing this all wrong, Oscar. I wanted her to engage with us the way we were engaging with each other. A very proficient actuary whose her insights were extraordinary. And I said, my work is done. I'll, I'll leave for the day. And he giggled and laughed at me. And he said, I, I, are you expecting to get paid for the full day or just <laughs> the half day? And I said, I'm getting paid for the value that I'm adding here. And as you mentioned, it's quite significant. I said, there is a conversation you and I need to have about your unconscious bias, but I'll pick that up at another time. Sometimes we judge people because they listen differently to us. We need to be very careful. We need to understand some of our unconscious bias. And there's, there's a beautiful online assessment you can do from Harvard and it, it's been taken by over 20 million people and this unconscious bias assessment will help you understand what are your primary worldviews and listening filters and how just by noticing them, you can become more potent in your communication. Um, I haven't forgotten your question, but I do want to pause because we have covered a lot of ground and I'm curious about what that's prompted for you. I like the part about how different languages had value. And I want to make sure we explain that well for the audience. So this is the way mm. I interpreted what you said and tell me if it's right. So it's I was trying to think of an analogy to get the listeners to understand this. And I was thinking of a soccer game, a football game. So imagine you take four people and put them at the four corners of a football field and they're watching the same game but from a different vantage point. What they see, what they think is happening, what they think happened is all going to be correct for all four people, but there's going to be significant differences if they compared notes because they're seeing very different things. 
So to me, when I thought was thinking of languages, I was thinking of that analogy to get the audience to understand it. Everyone's seeing what's true in their minds. But when they explain it, they're going to focus on things the other person cannot see because they don't have that frame of reference. And when I think about it that way, I think, wow, that's a very powerful thing we're leaving on the table by not actively drawing in the other person's frame of reference. Mm-hmm. You know, in a practical sense, this is a life or death situation on a battlefield. When you're calling in an airstrike and you're relying on your soldiers to tell the Air Force where to drop ammunition and you better get the frame of reference right (laughs) so you know people think it doesn't make a lot of sense but it does make a lot of sense and i think of so many examples one of the most common things i've experienced as a senior partner when i worked with clients they would always tell me stories like you know we were too late going into china we were too late going into india we're too late with this we're too late with that But often when we dig deep down to understand why they were too late, they were never late. Someone always saw it was going to be an opportunity. Someone was trying to get management to do something about it, but management did not appreciate that person's frame of reference. That person had their foot on the ground. They were listening to what is happening, but management was so far removed, they couldn't interpret what they were hearing. And it's a common story in every single client I've encountered. They always tell me, but we missed this. You never missed it. You've got the field reports. You didn't act on it. So why didn't you act on it? And I think when we talk about listening, and earlier you said it comes back to what is the cost of not listening. There is a very big cost to not listening. Yeah. And the difference between hearing and listening is action. And I want to go back. About seven years ago, I was working with a very complex pharmaceutical organization in sterile manufacturing. And I was brought in to this manufacturing site of about a thousand people on this site. And I was brought in because the engineering teams and the chemistry teams had consistently had batching errors. And what does that mean? There were impurities inconsistently appearing in the production line. And as a result, the batches which were being used in medicine were destroyed. A batch is $10 million. That's a lot of money in anybody's money. In desperation, uh, the CEO brought me in to speak to 93 of their leadership community who had struggled with this issue. They thought they'd solved it. It came back again. It comes back inconsistently. What's going on? Oscar help us out. So I was brought into this room and you could you could feel the tension in the air. It was like fog coming down out of the air conditioning system, Michael. And I know nothing about engineering. I know nothing about chemistry. And I said, talk to the person next to you and describe the problem. And and the room did that for about 20 minutes. And, and there was a big hum and there was excitement and there's energy. And we asked the group to explain the problem consistently to each other and they couldn't. So we did another exercise and the exercise was simply this, who are we not talking to about this problem? 
And it consistently came back with the answer, we're not talking to production line workers about this problem. So all the masters and PhDs in chemistry were all talking Six Sigma and all kind of root cause analysis and flow charts and fishbone diagrams and all yeah. this very intricate approach to this. But they had daily control meetings where the um, people on the production line talk to their managers about how the production went that day and if there were any issues, put them on a card and they will get resolved. They came back and said, we're not talking to production. I said, we are going to stop the workshop right now. And for the next three hours, I want you all, please don't mess up the production line schedule. I want you all to go and talk to as many production workers about this as possible. And what came back was fascinating. And one production worker re-explained, apparently for the fifth time, that they put a daily control deviation card in eight months ago about a rusty pipe in the production line. The manager told them that production line is doing $2 million a day. We haven't got time to fix this pipe. We'll get to it in the next planned maintenance sequence. They never did just by going back and listening to who they hadn't listened to. Go and listen to who's said something that you haven't actioned. They resolved that problem within a week. They took out an $8 rusty pipe. And the reason there was inconsistency in the production process is the flakes of rust were falling off at inconsistent times. They thought there was something else. Too many people in the workplace don't realise that the truth is always with the customer. It's always with the people who are touching the customers or the production line. And whether it's commissions of inquiry with BP and the Deepwater Oil Horizon accident, space shuttles exploding, what is consistent in all of those commissions of inquiry is the frontline workers spoke up and were ignored or they were shut down. This is the consequence of not listening in your workplace. When I think of those stories, and I'm familiar with all of them, I often think about the incentive models organizations have. Because whenever you're rolling out any idea change to a company, you can see if they're going to incorporate it and improve based on the incentive model. If the board and management is incentivized to understand that it's okay to stop the production for a week to fix something, that if it's not fixed, it's going to cause problems years down the line, then they'll do it. So... In all these examples, I always wonder why hasn't management progressed to the point whereby we know what happened with the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. We know what happened with BP. Someone spoke up and someone was ignored. So how do we set up an incentive model? It's maybe an unfair question because no one's been able to figure it out. But, <laughs> but how do we set it up so that people don't think they should avoid a little pain to fix the greater good, because that's what's going on now. People say, this is just a nuisance. We can deal with it. It's not going to translate into a major issue, but it often does. How do we get people not just to listen, but to set it up so that there's economic profit to listening? Because we can talk about costs 
and I have clients, they'll tell me about, well, we've learned our lessons from this. It's not going to happen to us. We have best practices, but it always happens, right? In fact, right now, something's going wrong somewhere in the world because nobody listened. Mm -hmm. So we can listen when we remember to listen. But how do we want to listen is maybe a better question. What we know from our research is very consistent. When, when it comes to listening, most people think that the place to start listening is by focusing on the speaker. Yeah. It's the wrong place to begin. It, it's handy. It's useful. It's productive. The most important person you need to listen to first is you. Yes. Most people turn up to conversations with multiple browser tabs open in their mind in yes. a cluttered way, chewing up memory in your mind, and you're not even available to understand what the other person's saying because there's no space. You're thinking about the last meeting, the next meeting, you're anticipating uh, the restructure, a client conversation. There are so many things going on for people. If they just took a little bit of time to become present, they would be available to notice many of these things. Some of the tips we give to our clients are very practical and pragmatic. A simple example is if you are creating a meeting request, Never start a meeting at the top of the hour. Start it at five after the hour. Finish it at five to the hour. I use this technique with my clients and universally, no matter how senior they are, they all come to me dialed into the call and say, oh, I so look forward to our conversations because I know I've got time to visit the restroom, get a glass of water, and just think about what I'm going to discuss with you, Oscar. I like now I do it. it for I do it for very selfish reasons because my meetings will go quicker. Yes. Whereas when I'm invited to a meeting and it's at the top of the hour, I'll arrive a minute early because that's how I schedule my life. Most times the host won't arrive on time. And when they do, they'll start with an apology or some yes. kind of harried response to go, oh, look, I'm really sorry. The last meeting ran over and um, I just got to collect my thoughts. And we're not even, it will take them 15 minutes to get ready, to be ready to listen because they're trying to process the meeting while I'm processing yes. the last meeting. So if you're a leader or you consult to leaders, give them the gift of time. Give them the gift of five minutes before and after. The same is true if you're running in half-hour meeting increments as well. Start at five after the hour or five after the half hour at the bottom of the half hour. These things are very easy to say, yet they're difficult to practice. Now, I came from an industry that sold the calendar software that you use, and I know this can be set up by default. So that's not yes. an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but I like this yeah. suggestion because it's not even a gift to the attendees. It's a gift to yourself. If you allow people to be calm when they enter a meeting, it's going to be a far more productive meeting. It's going to be better for you. Things are going to go smoother. 
communicationally better. The issue whereby people arrive late and they spend time apologizing is something I've always counseled clients on. Because you put yourself on a back foot. You have a mentality of trying to please the person. You've lost 15 minutes, sometimes more, just trying to get the conversation going. But it's a very simple thing that people don't do. I know people that take pride in being late for meetings. And then they will be apologizing because it's a sign of their busyness, which they equate with importance. This is totally unscientific, Michael. And I sense you may be able to either validate or refute this model. Whenever I run half-day workshops or one-day workshops for my clients, uh, when the group is fully formed and in the room and ready to start, there's never that the schedule time. Yes. And I often, I often speculate that how late the meeting starts is a function of how much the business is underperforming. So if you take 15 minutes and divide that by three hours, that value as a percentage, I reckon that's how they underperform. When the meetings are closer to everybody turning up on time, uh, those systems seem to have higher performance. What, what do you think of that random little heuristic that I use to correlate performance with attendance? I think the culture of a business does have an influence on a company, for sure. But we don't know if it's positive or negative because there's so many different cultural traits involved. Mm. If we have control for culture and all these other variables, and maybe. But I would say you are right in saying that when meetings start is a reflection of the culture of a company. Mm. And the culture of a company affects its performance in some way, significantly yeah. positive or significantly negatively. But I would say that when I was younger, I was very methodical in the way I did things, very by the book, very structured, very logical. And I took great pride in that. And I would almost see it as a sign of disrespect if someone did not follow the same rules. It's like being in the Marines. Everyone knows the drill. If you don't follow the drill, what are you doing there, right? Mm. And it's, you know, I was very fortunate that I moved into senior leadership in my 20s. And then I had to manage people who were not like me. Even if they worked in the same firm, they came from another office where the culture is you don't look someone in the eye. And if you look someone in the eye, it's a sign of disrespect. Mm. Or you don't directly challenge someone. And then it's my job to find time to speak to them individually so they could tell me what they want to say in a way where I don't lose face. Mm. So when I'm thinking about culture, I'm thinking sometimes we just don't understand cultures. <laughs> That's why we listen so badly. You know, it's like what you said very well. We have a way of thinking and we think everyone has that way of thinking. And the biggest mistake I've seen we make is we think if everyone works in the same company with trained in the same processes, then we're going to be able to communicate seamlessly. And that's never been the case. Yes. So what I'm seeing is there's so many opportunities here for people to improve their performance just by knowing how to listen. I want to bring back that original question that we kind of meandered past and uh, want to be clear with everybody that there are five levels to listening. And the five levels of listening are listening to yourself, mm -hmm. listening to content. Content is what you see, mm -hmm. what you hear, what you sense. Sense is about emotion. 
a lot of people say to me, oh, Oscar, what do you do when you're listening to somebody who's emotional? And I say, it's another form of content. It's another data point. If you're uncomfortable with their emotion, that's a different thing from yes. them being uncomfortable with their emotion. So at level one, listening to yourself and level two, listening to the content, we are listening to things. This is the most rudimentary and basic and most common way people listen. They listen to things. At level three, four, and five, we move from listening to things to listening for things. So at level three, we're listening for the context. At level four, we're listening for the unsaid. And at level five, we're listening for what it means for them. Context is about the backstory. Yes. It's about the culture and it's about the way people express the idea. It's about how they say it. When we take the time to listen fully to the backstory, not where they're up to in the backstory, when people come and describe a project and its performance on track, off track, they're typically explaining it with a significant currency bias. It is the present moment and looking slightly back and slightly forward. If you understand how the project started, hey, take me back to when this project kicked yes. off. You will get a very different backstory and political landscape than if you just listen to the first story they tell you. Listen carefully at level three for the use of absolutes, always, never, precisely. And there's quite a long list of them in the book, How to Listen. Yes. These are signals to the mental model of the person you're listening to. And it's an opportunity to help them notice whether that mental model is productive or unproductive in the context of what we're doing. Level four, listen for what's unsaid. We've spent a lot of time talking about the science of this. When you listen for what's unsaid, you will see them physically shift in their body position. Their skull will sit differently on their spine. Their shoulders will go to a different position. Their breathing will be different. Their eye position will be very different. It will sound something like this. When you listen for what's unsaid, they'll say, hmm, now that I think about it, you know what we haven't discussed? Hmm. Michael, I've just realized what's even more important than this. Hmm. I've just realized we still need to talk about off we go. Before you continue, Oscar, just for the audience, how do you broach the subject of the unsaid? Thank you. Silent and listen, share the identical letters. In the West, we use phrases like the pregnant pause, the awkward silence, the deafening silence. The more senior you are, the more listening you will do. If you're at board executive level, if you're leading large groups of people, you will be spending up to 83% of your day listening more than speaking. So it's critical that you learn the technique about how to listen for what's unsaid. And the first tip is 
how do you skillfully, elegantly, professionally, and not in an intimidating way, use silence? For most of us, that's just practicing to pause. When they draw a deep breath in, that's not your signal. That's not your commercial break to jump in. That's them just collecting their thoughts. Remember the 125-900 rule from earlier on. One thing we don't realize with questions is questions have directions. North, south, east, west. North, south questions keep the conversation going in the same direction. So back to your point, Michael, how do we get them to explain their unsaid? A north, south question would simply be, tell me more, say more, please expand. That will keep their thinking going in the same direction. East-West questions are examples like, and what else? Is there anything else? If we came back in a year, how would this discussion be different? One thing to think about our questions, by the way, Michael, is eight words or less makes the question tend to neutral. Eight words or more tends it to be biased. Now, biased or neutral questions are not correct or incorrect, but you do need to be conscious when you use them. The shorter your question, the more likely you will elicit their unsaid. When you ask a longer question than eight words, it's more likely to be a question about your understanding of the content. So the three tips for the unsaid, pause, use silence, ask, tell me more, ask, and what else? Those last two questions go in very different directions, but make them your own. Don't make them so short that you say, tell me more. Yeah. Because some people was like, oh, that's a bit abrupt. Uh, okay, in Israel, when you're speaking Hebrew, by the way, okay, if you're dealing with Russians, no problem. Culturally, that's yeah. completely acceptable. Make it your own. Uh, uh, I'm fascinated. Tell me more. Oh, that, that's got me so curious. Tell me more about that. that. That's a way that if you're in a relationship with somebody. My suspicion is, Michael, you use a version of those questions already, though, but maybe you don't use them consciously in a north-south or an east-west direction. Well, my take on this is I have a different lens of looking at this. If you look at the style of thinking you have, which I think is very powerful and very effective and very useful, it will only work if someone doesn't think they have all the answers. So if I'm having a discussion with someone and I think I have all the answers, I'm not going to listen to them. I'm not going to draw out what they want to say. And one of the things I always tell my clients is don't be an expert. Don't take pride in being an expert. Don't call yourself an expert. Because when you're an expert, you have all the answers and you think you have all the answers. And if I look at clients who call themselves experts, and I look at the way they conduct themselves, they're not interested in drawing out ideas. They're interested in sharing their ideas. So all the techniques you teach here and you practice with clients, very powerful. At a starting point, I want listeners to think about, do you see yourself as an expert? Or do you see yourself as someone trying to help your colleagues, your clients, your customers, 
to create you know value for everyone because i'm thinking to myself someone who sees himself as an expert he's not going to pause <laughs> and and draw out things as soon as the person stops speaking they're going to jump in and say based on my experience this is what i think we should do so i think the mental frame is the powerful techniques we're discussing here they work when you come with the right mindset and commercially when you listen to solve you're listening transactionally and you're yes. going to solve transactional problems for your clients and it will make you referable for transactional work if you want to be referred for transformational work if you want to be referred as somebody that can think in completely different ways then be conscious that you are not the expert it is not your ideas or thinking i always laugh and people go oh wow you've thought so much about this oscar i go i haven't it's not even my idea it's yes. an idea that's coming through me at this point in time and i'm lucky enough to catch it and express it for me i i take great comfort in the martial arts the martial arts have a belt system you start a white belt and eventually you move through to black belt now by the way colored belts were invented by europeans because in the east you were white belt and you worked for decades and eventually became black belt but that was too not enough progression for westerners so they developed all these color systems yellow belts and blue belts and etc but what's interesting about the martial arts is this when I've studied uh, specifically judo and understood the system of progression. When they interview decade long black belts, they always ask them, what is beyond black belt? Meaning they are experts in their martial art at black belt. You are doing not just 10,000 yeah. hours, not just 20,000 hours. You, you, you are dedicating a lifetime. And in all the masters that have been recorded, what do they all have in common? They all say at Black Belt, the most important thing to bring is the open mind and the curiosity of the white belt. I like that. That is quite profound. It's an interesting story because when you were talking about this, I was in my back of my mind playing my experiences talking to people around the world. And when I always spoke to people who really understood what they were talking about, the conversations always were about the things they didn't understand about what they supposedly understood. And for me, whenever I talk to someone, that's how I know this person's an expert in their field. They know what they don't know. And when I'm talking to someone and they believe the answer is obvious, they believe that what they do is the only solution in the world. It works, just do it, and it'll solve all your problems and put a unicorn in your field. It's a sign the person is not mature enough. It's a different way of the story you just mentioned. Mm. And it's very true. When people reach a level of mastery, they truly understand what they don't know. And that gives them a learning path forward. Mm. And it's a gift to know what you don't know, actually. And again, it's a playful paradox. People often say to me, you know, 
multiple research studies you've done, you've interviewed people, yes. you've got data, you you research the academic literature, you know, and and I and I say my most significant learning is what I I know so little. The more I study this field, the more I realize I know so little, and it creates for me uh, a curiosity uh, about how does this play out with people whose home language isn't the same? How does it play out in heavily sequential, logical professions where you may come from actuarial, you may come from engineering, you may come from software development, you may come from a system of construction where you, you're creating physical things and there are consequences for that. Equally, it has me speculating about the role of home language versus second language. It, it gets me curious about the thing I ask myself consistently when I think about the five levels of listening and the four villains of listening is I, I test myself with academics and other practitioners in the market. And every year, with a small group of people, there's four in this network, uh, I, I ask them to break the model with me and tell me what are the boundary conditions. In fact, it reminds me of a conversation. I was brought in to an organisation where the actuaries, these are the people who calculate life mm -hmm. insurance and, and the likelihood that you'll survive and various kinds of uh, medical issues you may have. And, and the issue was the actuaries, the finance team and the sales and distribution organization couldn't agree on the pricing strategy. And uh, it was a full day workshop and I just listened till lunchtime <laughs> and the chief risk officer and the appointed actuary and the head of finance were the people who'd sponsored this meeting. And at lunchtime, they said to me, are you going to say anything? I said, yes, I'll, I'll start up straight after lunch. And um, I, I started straight up after lunch and I said, I've been listening carefully to what everybody's saying. Now, Michael, what people in the audience don't know, I failed high school maths and <laughs> actuaries uh, yes. don't think about maths in numbers. They think about maths in formulas. They have a language all of itself. So I understood nothing about what was going on, the content. Because I was listening for context, unsaid and meaning, I simply asked people for the next five minutes, I want you to document all the assumptions that you haven't explained to the group. Write them down. And they put them on sticky notes and put them on the wall. And there were 14 participants in the room and there were over 200 sticky notes at the end of the 15 minute exercise. And I said, it's not important we read what's on the sticky notes. It's just the number, the sheer volume of this. Correct. <laughs> what does this mean for how we communicate in the second half of the day? I want you to just break into pairs and have that dialogue. And in that 30-minute breakout, one person asked to stop the room in the, in the middle of the exercise. 
and they obviously something material had happened for them. And they and their counterpart had just come to a very important insight in a fundamental assumption that wasn't even on those sticky notes and yet was holding the various factions apart. And they announced it to the room and you could hear this audible sigh where people went, oh. And the, the audible assumption was simply this. Um, none of us have brought competitive pricing into the conversation. We need to stop the meeting and reschedule and go out and understand the marketplace and the pricing from the market because everything was an internal conversation, yes. internal cost of capital, blah, 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 blah. Now, I could have done that exercise, Michael, any time in the morning. I don't think the group would have been as motivated yes. as they were after lunch. So sometimes it matters as much when you listen Absolutely. to what's not said as people need what to, you to listen see, to. People need to have some skin in the game. They have to have experienced the consequences a little hmm. before they are willing to go ahead with a new approach. So you're right. Timing is... Not everything, but it's a big part of it. Yeah. And part of that's art, part of that's science. Yes. And, you know, some of that is just your gut feel and a bit of experience and understanding the group dynamics. And, and it, it's all about what is the boundary condition of your model? If you're thinking about a methodology, how are you testing that with like-minded professionals who can stretch your thinking? And it takes great humility and great curiosity to subject yourself to a process where you have that tested. This is one of the reasons why I respect the academic professions because they set up conferences yes. just to do that. And I think we could learn a lot from that profession in our pursuit of understanding what are the boundary conditions of our model it's not important that there are boundary conditions and we don't necessarily need to expand them. But I will always announce the boundary conditions of my model. So when we talk about the four villains of listening, which are the significant archetypes and the barriers to listening, I always announce it's for English-speaking Western yeah. workplaces. This is, is not transferable into other languages, other contexts. It is only in professional dialogues. It is not in personal dialogues. Please do not pick up these techniques and use them at home. Commercial break, you may end up in a divorce. <laughs> do, not, do not practice these with your children. You, you may have unintended consequences. Do not do these with your best friends having a drink uh, together on a yes. Friday night. And I think when I announced that very early on in any presentation, in any keynote, in any workshop, in any conversation, uh, people relax because it's like, oh, okay. So it's not the universal answer to everything. And listening isn't. Speaking has its place, but action is the most important thing yes. for both of those. So I think if you're consulting, the point I'd simply make is who are those like-minded professionals who can help you understand the boundary conditions of your model so as a practitioner, you can make a bigger impact. And the reason you end up making a bigger impact is you're easier to refer because when people know how you work, they can explain that to other people. 
and the referral work I get from that little network, and the opposite is true, the way I refer back into that network is very clear because we understand the problems we can solve very easily. And I can explain how others can solve problems for my clients very easily as well. So one of the humilities in consulting work for me, and people are often surprised, I'll say very quickly, usually in the first 15 minutes of an initial briefing conversation, I'm not the right person for this problem. I know the person who can fix that, but I am not that person. And I remember a, a chief information officer from, oh, it's nine years ago. He's become my best seller because I listened to his real problem, not what he presented to me. And he's referred more work to me than any of my clients because I solved his problem and his problem wasn't me. I couldn't solve it, but I gave him somebody who could. And in that moment, Michael, everything in my ego was saying, oh, yeah, but if I twist it this way, yes. it could be an assignment. And then I took a glass of water and a deep breath and went, no, we are here to serve the client and their outcome. And yes. that client has served me decade later and still yes. will because I knew what the boundary condition was and I knew what I didn't know. Absolutely. We're very similar in the sense that my view of a client is someone you keep a relationship through decades, even when they're only paying you 5% of the time. And this client clients never are never me. going to be <laughs> paying you all the time, but you should always be looking to help them. Yeah. And I think it's a really good world. I'm glad you, you were wrapping up with that because when you teach all these skills, people always think, yeah, I'm going to use this skill to serve this client and make them pay me. But there are times when you need to walk away, when it's in everyone's interest that you listen, you point them in the right direction, and then you help them when it's the best time for you to help them. Oscar, thank you so much. Such a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. It was really good. I'm hoping we can have you back on the show later in the year to continue the conversation because I suspect there's a lot of things we haven't touched on. But it'd be great to see what the audience says. I'm sure they'll love it. Get some of their questions in and then we can see what direction to take the second conversation in. I found mm -hmm. it very interesting to listen to. I found it useful and it gives me some powerful techniques that I will be able to personally use. I'm of the view that you can always be better. And you've got to find people who can make you better things that are important to you. And communication, one of the most important things, but it's not about communicating what you want to say. It's about listening to what your team has to tell you. Thank you, Oscar. You have a good rest of the day. Thank you, Michael. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.